Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Good morning. Morning, Steve. And we're also here with... Jerry. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning. And everybody, welcome to the Field Guides. Every episode, Steve and I research a natural history topic, and then we pick a natural place and head out into the field to share everything we learn. In this episode, we are here at Rheinstein Woods, and this is actually a repeat place for us, right, Steve? Yeah, this is our first repeat. Episode two we recorded here last year at this time. Yep, the fall colors episode. That's right, and similar to last time, I'm I'm sick. Yeah, yeah. it's not as bad though. (laughs) No, we are here on a beautiful fall day in late September, and we're hunting for... Witch hazel. It's a tree species that Steve and I thought, hey, this is a good time of year because witch hazel is doing something pretty unique. Right. It's flowering. (laughs) Well, we hope it's flowering, right? We hope it's flowering. That's what we hope to find. But before we get into witch hazel, we should introduce our guest. Yeah. We're here with Jerry Rising, who's a Renaissance man of of Western New York. Right, Jerry? I don't know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) That means you're involved in lots of wonderful things. So you're a mathematician. You're a writer. Fair enough. (laughs) I got to know Jerry from his article that was for decades in the Buffalo News. And you've just published a book, right? Yes. I've uh, published a uh, book called Birds and Bird Watchers. It's a collection of a hundred of my essays, most of which appeared in that uh, Nature Watch column in the news. There are a few others. Get out and buy it. (laughs) (laughs) So I ordered my copy, and Steve better order his soon. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Jerry asked to come along on one of our recording sessions. Our last two we did were, were a little different, so we decided to hold off and invite Jerry on this one. But to start off talking about witch hazel, why don't we talk about where the name comes from? Yeah. None of the accounts I read were 100% sure where it came from, but sure. uh, one account says that in England, witch hazel and witch elm were synonyms for each other. Okay. And when colonists came here to America, they saw witch hazel, it looked like witch elm, and so they just started calling it witch hazel. All right, so I'll tell you what I found. Okay. And... Since I don't always completely mark my notes, this could be from Wikipedia for all I know. (laughs) Etymology is always sort of tricky like that. Mm -hmm. You have no idea. Uh, Sometimes um, it seems like you have two pretty surefire sources. I gotta cut you off. Okay. Look. Oh, and we found him. We already found Witch Hazel. Apparently the name Witch, uh, which we think about as like a Halloween-related thing, and this is an October episode, so we can talk about that a little bit, but um, (laughs) the Middle English Witch, that means pliant or bendable. Or bendable, yep. Right, and the only other place I saw this was this weird video on YouTube where they're talking about mystical things, and they're like, oh, and the plant's very flexible, and and I'm like, okay, lady, you know, and, I, and I had no interest in it. But then I came across this, so th- I guess that is somewhat interesting. I mean, the lady was talking about the amount of water that's in it. I don't really understand well, it, the bendable aspect. It relates to what I was saying. Okay. Because witch elm in Europe, people did use the branches to build furniture and other things. So it was easily bendable. It would bend without breaking. That's where the witch part of the name came from. Now, the hazel part of the name, are you aware of this? I don't know. Oh, so, so apparently, uh, traditionally... Hazel plants are used for divining rods for finding yes. water, and so witch hazel. <coughs> sorry, and so witch hazel was used also for the same thing, and so they are calling it the bendable hazel. Right, and <laughs> I've heard that. I that's... heard that too. This is where kind of the stories overlap and get mixed up because I heard the witch part of the name came from the the dowsing too. Because do you know about dowsing, Jerry? Sure, water witching. Right, and that's what I'm talking about. So it's also referred to as water witching. Witching, so I like it. I, I don't want to spend too much time on dowsing, but for the people that don't know, 
That's mm-hmm. where someone would take a Y-shaped piece of wood, or they would take two L-shaped pieces of wood, and they'd walk around, and supposedly, through the motions of the, the branches, they could find water, but they also used it to find gold or gemstones, <laughs> or even, I found graves, grave sites. Oh, okay. So, of course, this is pseudoscience. <laughs> but if you want a great internet rabbit hole to go down, just type in dowsing and start. <laughs> There's amazing, crazy stories out there about what people believe. Right, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> check it out sometime. But, yeah, uh, witch hazel here in America was used for those purposes. Mm-hmm. So that could have to do with the witch part of the name. It could have to do with the hazel part of the name. Right. All right, but now that we're here in front of one, why don't we talk a little bit about what it looks like? Sure. So one of my favorite parts about the plant, and I mean, I'm just going to get right to the point, is the leaf. I love this um, sort of like an elm. Mm-hmm. It has that uneven base. Yep, it's oval. Yeah. With so, a wavy margin, mm-hmm. right? And it's about, uh, the leaves are about four to five inches long, about three, four inches wide. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, a, it's typically a shorter deciduous tree. Right. I was seeing anything up to 30 feet at the most, but usually between most. like... I think it was like 10 and 20. Yeah, 10 and 20. And I saw a few accounts that rarely to 30 feet or rarely to 40 feet. And I used the word tree, but really most accounts I said said it's a shrub or rarely a small tree. Right. Although that's a fine line. People draw what's a shrub and what's a tree. Sure. <laughs> We've talked about that before right. with uh, with sumac. But it's definitely going to be in the understory. Right. You're never going to see it growing up tall. Yeah, that, that was another thing I wanted to say. Just understory, so it's in the woods, and yep. apparently it, it prefers moist soils, which That's right. that makes sense here. The one uh, account I read said it grows in well-shaded forests and that it grows in clusters, so it's not evenly distributed throughout the forest. Oh, that has a lot to, to do with what I was saying with the seed dispersal. Ah, see, I was just yeah. going to ask you about that. Right. So, And that's <laughs> why, because it's method of seed dispersal. It's not being evenly distributed throughout the forest. We'll get into that in a yeah, bit. Yeah, sure. All right, so we talked about what it looks like talked about oh the range so if you're anywhere in the eastern u.s you should be able to find witch hazel oh yeah if you're in a well-shaded forest uh some of the midwestern states have it and then all throughout southern canada as well let's say the scientific name oh hemimalis uh, virginiana hemimalis hemimalis oh, i never get it right virginiana yeah <laughs> so we have a leaf gall jerry's pointing out a uh, some kind of discoloration on one of the leaves yeah and i actually i couldn't help but notice this one this is a beautiful one. oh so folks there's on one of the leaves there is, it almost looks like a horn projecting up, up and out of the leaf. It's so, like a rose prick or a, yep. a rose yes. thorn, yeah. Do you know what that is? Oh, I don't know. Oh. Do you know? <laughs> well, <laughs> when I was doing research, I saw there were two or three galls that typically form. And I said, oh, Steve will look into the galls. I don't need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm writing a thesis right now, so I, <laughs> I didn't look into galls. I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. All right, so we're going to have to uh, look into that post recording and post that up yeah we'll post a picture and a a description so there's definitely a gall here some insect laid its egg and its larva is using the leaf to develop but it it really it looks like a little thorn poking up out of the oh yeah that's not the only one here's one that's turned all completely black oh yeah right above it right so also on the plant we can see right now what'd you see steve no that one this this one i'm going to take the leaf off it's it's not going to do much anymore (laughs) there we go so i don't know if we look at the bottom think that's an escape hole ah. so this this is an old one i think maybe it was earlier in the season yeah. and the and the, so insect the insect completed that part of its lifestyle or life life cycle i should say yeah all right so and we should say plug for our first episode if you want to know about galls go yeah. back and listen to our very first episode on goldenrod galls right <laughs> why don't we talk about the flowers now 
The crazy thing about witch hazel, the reason we chose this species to do here in September is because right now most things are either finished flowering or it's the end of their flowering season. Mm -hmm. But witch hazel is just starting to blossom right now. So it flowers from September to November. Some accounts I read said into December. Oh, yeah. Which is a great reason why it's called winter bloom. Mm -hmm. That's one of its common names. And the other hamamila species, they blossom from January to March. Yeah, it's always like a sp early spring, late yeah, winter. Like most. Type yeah, Because the other two hamamila species I found are more southern species. Down oh, yeah. In like Texas and the Ozarks. Mm -hmm. um, so it makes sense that they'd be blooming as early as, as January. So this is completely, this one, our species of witch hazel, blooms outside their blooming season. And I did find a study that hypothesized... I did too. ...that that's why it evolved the strategy, was to avoid mm -hmm. um, competing with the other members of its genus. Right. So I want to read, uh, normally we don't read directly from things, but John Eastman in his book of Forest and Thicket... Yeah, Jerry said he read the Witch Hazel account before he came along with us today. <laughs> Started out. That's right. Yeah. So this is what John Eastman had to say. I love how he said it. From S September to December, even as they drop their leaves, these shrubs flame into yellow torches. Because even as the leaves start to desiccate and fall off the tree, the blossoms are coming out. Which to me just seems crazy. Like this tree's, I'm dropping yeah. my leaves, getting ready for the wintertime. Oh, I'm going to flower now too. So uh, the flowers I found, they're in clusters of three, and they have four slender, twisted, strap-like petals. Mm -hmm. and th those are about half an inch to three-quarters of an inch long. And whenever I've seen witch hazel in flower, it's pale to dark yellow. Have you ever seen it red or orange, though? No. Because a couple accounts I read said the flowers could be red and orange, too. Uh, so the, the the very tip of the female part of the flower, it's sort of a two-parted stigma. The part that receives the pollen. The part that receives the pollen that can actually turn reddish. And oh. I, I wonder if that's what they're talking about. I've also seen pictures where uh, the sepals are, are sort of a red, and also I heard that the petals eventually do, with age, darken. Oh, to so like maybe a, that's what they were Like to. an orangey or a reddish. Right. But, but I think some subspecies, I, I think I did read, they are red instead, or orange or red instead. Okay. But I think those are more like horticultural. I could be cultivars. wrong, though. Or cultivars, yeah. Right. yeah. Now, did you find in your research whether they're insect pollinated or whether they self-pollinate? I did. Based on a 2002 study I read, I think there's good reason to think they don't self-pollinate, though there are studies saying that they do. That's what I found. There was discrepancies. I found one study that said they definitely don't self-pollinate. Yeah. And then I found another study that said, no, no, they do. So when we say they don't self-pollinate, what we mean by that yes. is that they effectively do not self-pollinate. It's just that... It's not a significant way of... Right. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about this in a minute, but witch hazel is already a, a plant that puts out so few fruits as it is. Mm -hmm. And then when you self-pollinate, it's either... <laughs> there's either no fruits created or the, or the amount of fruits that's created is so low. So small. Uh, when, when we look at entire groups of trees and whatnot... It's such a tiny percentage that actually goes through with putting out fruit that it's essentially as if they don't self-pollinate. Okay. So it's not significant. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's like you cut the number of fruits that even develop by half, I think, or, or maybe more. it's even less than half. Yeah. That, yeah by self-pollinating. Yeah. It's not anything that this plant does regularly. And I should say that naturally, this plant's only putting out about one percent of its possible fruits that it could be putting out based on the number of flowers that it puts out. So yeah. it puts out so many flowers, and only 1% of those really make it through the, um, to becoming a fruit. Yeah, the one study I said, they looked at hundreds of, 
there was thousands of flowers, right. and they found less than one percent of those flowers actually set fruit. Yeah, but, that, but that makes, was that was one of the studies that I looked at, and they looked at uh, forty thousand flowers. That's I think we were looking at the same yeah. one. But it makes sense because think about it: this flowers in the fall, and what makes walking in the fall so pleasant? There's no insects. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> it it blows my mind that this plant has evolved this strategy to set out these flowers when there's so few pollinators out. Like, why would this thing evolve to have wind pollination, you know, rather than insects? You know what, though? Just looking around, there are still other things flowering. Like, just look behind you. Oh, we yeah. have uh, white snake roots flowering. We, we still saw goldenrod. Like white snake root. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, um, you know, there was goldenrod, white snake root. I think there was a couple other things. The asters are flowering. The, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this plant really holds out. And from what I read, they usually wait until about up to two weeks before the first frost is when they'll officially start opening their flowers and so, then and then they're around for about well they're not around for very long after that only three or four weeks and and each flower only lasts about eight days i have a good analogy here this is like the crappy convenience store that stays open at like four in the morning because after everything else is closed <laughs> it's like this is the only place you can get some pollen or nectar so you better come to me right <laughs> so you had mentioned before you had asked uh, what pollinates it yeah so it's mostly uh, flies and bees but it's about 73% flies. And and among that, 42% of those are fungus gnats. And this is actually in the same study that you and I looked at, um, when they actually looked at the pollen that are on those, that are on these fungus gnats, 70% of the pollen was all hemimalis. So, you know, they're, <laughs> they're really waiting until they're, they're the only game in town, right, really. That's, exactly. that's what it seems like, or, or close enough to the only game in town. So why don't we talk about the, the fruit and the seeds now? Sure. All right. So when a flower is pollinated, that's the other Be crazy Be careful. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> so when the flower receives the pollen, yeah. it actually doesn't fertilize the ova until when? Oh, it, it doesn't happen until like the next March. I heard until May. Oh, I don't That's I don't what know. I read. It may receive the pollen sometime in the fall, uh, mid to late fall, maybe even early winter, but it's actually not going to do the fertilization until the following spring. And then that flower will develop into the seed capsule. And how would you describe these capsules? They're about, this one's a small one in front of us right now. It almost looks like a, a green fuzzy acorn. When you... I'm surprised that it looks four-parted because it's a bicarpellate. Right, so it's um, two-chambered. Yeah, two-chambered ovary, but this yeah. really looks four. I mean, it looks very clearly like four. Yeah. Maybe because they're young. Oh, but look at this. This is split in half, and it still has that four-parted look. Yep. It has a weird four-parted look, but it still splits in half, and it's just it's still bi it's just bicarpellate. It just looks like four, I guess. So these the fruit is it's woody, and it's about it can get up to about three eighths of an inch long. Okay, so almost half an inch long. Each chamber within, when it's ready, will hold one glossy black seed about a quarter of an inch long. So as Steve mentioned before, the cool part is is during the late fall. Again, sometime between September and November. So remember, folks, these are the fruits that were fertilized. I'm trying to make the point that these were last year's flowers. Well, right? yeah, let, let's talk about it this way. So the way you can think about it is, let's say, in autumn 2015. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, I should say, for people who are listening to this podcast late right now, we're in fall 2016, and now let's go back to autumn uh, 2015. Right. And that's when there's the pollen transfer. So the pollen is transferred to the stigma, and then the pollen tube starts to grow. But then it sort of stops, and it stays like that all winter long. 
And then in the spring, that's when fertilization occurs. And that's what Bill was saying. Uh, he, he heard May. I thought I heard March. Somewhere in the spring, in the spring. fertilization occurs. And it's around the time that the new leaves are produced. So it sort of waits until it's, it's uh, getting that growth. And then the fruits reach maturity in, do you know? It's like late August. Yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> it so takes the, a few months even for the fruits to, yeah. uh, to mature. Yeah. So this seed capsule we're looking at right now, this was last year's flower. Exactly right. And they'll remain on the plant even, I mean, we could be seeing flowers right now that could still be there, not to hiss, not dried out, not ready to explode, even when this year's flowers come on. Right. So, I mean, I, I just think that's crazy. And then, and then as soon as they dry out, the two seeds are ballistically yeah, ejected. I, I love so, the word ballistic. Yeah. I want to keep using that all the time. Yeah. So I read when temperature and humidity are just right, that's when the seeds are ejected and it makes a snapping or a popping sound when they're ejected so mm -hmm. it's also you said it's also called snapping alder and i heard snapping hazel was another word for it okay too. my experience has been that that's usually in the spring though really because all the accounts i read said it's in the fall i wonder i wonder if maybe some stand maybe it's like a they stand too long type of maybe. thing but i'm sure there's variation i, I wouldn't that maybe because the trick is you, you pick them take them home put them on a table and after a while they pop, they pop. so you're hmm. you're you're setting them off yeah yeah yeah, yeah. maybe okay. so the i've never heard them i've never been there when they have popped but you've been there and seen them yeah i've done that okay at home or in the wild at home okay so have you ever seen them in the wild doing their thing no, no. <laughs> just just imagine a snapdragon or an impatience or something yeah well i hope it's more impressive than that what those are impressive those are really impressive wait a minute, wait a minute. jewelweed is the one it yeah, is. impatience. But yeah. that doesn't go 20 or 30 well, feet. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But that doesn't, <laughs> right, okay. that doesn't go 20 or 30. Well, I'd never heard 30 feet. Did you hear 30 feet? I heard 30 feet is an extreme. Oh, okay, but yeah. Most the wind has to, to be just right, just right, and it has to hit a deer when it's going, and the deer will walk it a little bit. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think we're a little too early right now to see them going. But, folks, this is one reason we chose Witch Hazel as the topic for our episode now, because this will be released in early October sometime. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> right, Steve? Right. Yeah. Steve's going to do the editing on this one. Will I? <laughs> uh, so, Maybe. Uh, so we're hoping this will be out in early October, and we want to yep. give people a chance to go out and look for Witch Hazel. Mm -hmm. Because, if again, if you're living anywhere in the east or you know, the Midwest, you should be able to find this, this species out there. All right, so anything else about the seeds? Yeah, I actually think I do want to say something about it. So we had said that the flowers aren't fertilized until the next spring, but even by that December, you have 80% of the flowers falling off of the plant. Did you come across this? No. No. So, uh, and they actually had some pretty cool line graphs for this and this, this precipitous drop, drop in, in flowers that stay on the plant. So, so this is what we were talking about before where, where there's a very low seed set. So even though there's tons and tons and tons of flowers, very few of those seeds end up actually coming to fruition i guess right. and so you have 80 percent of the flowers falling off by december and then by march only eight percent of flowers are remaining so it loses an additional 12 percent on average well, I mean, uh, over the you winter have flowers in the winter <laughs> yeah yeah and now that there's eight percent left they're fertilized so eight percent of them are now fertilized and then um and then out of that remaining amount between 70 and 90 percent of those flowers are lost before july Gosh. Right. And then and then that tiny percentage that's left, those are the fruits that develop. So uh, they were wondering, 
you know, does this have anything to do with an allocation of resources? They want to know if it's a source sink type of relationship. And what they did was they removed, so they removed a ton of flowers. So, so on single branches. Early in the flowering season? Yeah, very early in the flowering season. I, I think they did it before December. So it was before the, you know, before the majority of them they fell grew, off. Yeah. So they, <laughs> they removed 70 to 85% of the flowers and still they had no better seed production on really? those branches at all. It has nothing to do with the amount of pollen that is in the area in terms of fertilization, and it has nothing to do with resources. So they're not allocating resources, and they, there's no shortage of pollen. They're just falling off. This is just what the tree does. The tree just does this. There is a reason that they think the tree does this, though. Something that we didn't uh, mention with the flower, we didn't really describe the flower other than the petals, but uh, the flower is perfect. So, uh, male and female it, so it's male and female. Uh, and it's sort of what Bill and I had just said uh, not too long ago is that they don't self-fertilize. At least not effectively, yeah. they don't really self-fertilize. And they don't know the mechanism for how they don't self-fertilize, but they think it maybe has something to do with the pollen tube. The plant can sense something, and then if it's its own pollen, it, it just it yeah. just it aborts, aborts the flower. Yeah. Now, this kind of comes back to something else that, that Bill had said earlier, is that these usually grow in patches. And we think we, we can relate that to the seed dispersal because... It's not going out far. Yeah. So the seeds of a, the seeds of a witch hazel are only going out like 20 feet at, at the most. most. Yeah. And so you're just going to get patches of highly related witch hazels. And so what, if you imagine what pollen is going to get on any witch hazel in that area, probably a, a pollen of a close relative. And so even if it's not self-fertilizing, if it's, if it's a close relative, they think that that is another reason to abort because they don't want close relatives fertilizing other close relatives. Oh. So they might have some evolutionary history there with knowing if a pollen is somehow closely related and to... Knowing is in quotes. Yeah, knowing. Yeah, knowing. <laughs> um, plants don't know anything, all right? So at least not in the traditional <laughs> way. But that's, um, that's so cool. So they have this mechanism for, at least almost statistically speaking, right. making sure that they're probably going to get pollen from some other patch of witch hazel farther away in the woods. Right, yeah. And this is this is sort of a problem that's, that some plants have where... The male and female parts, at least in this species, they do develop at the exact same time, and that's a huge problem. Right. And so, one thing that this paper that I was that I that I had read had brought up was something called stigma clogging, and that's when you have low quality pollen clogging a stigma because there's not really much surface area on the stigma. And, low, and that sounds great. Low what, quality pollen. But, clogging but this is important stigma. because if you if if I just stopped there, low quality pollen, I don't think anyone would know what I that's mean. That's racist. Do you, <laughs> Do you know what I mean by low-quality pollen? No, I don't. Closely related pollen. Okay. So the plant may, because they grow in groups and because, you know, there's not very many insects around and because they do it so late in the year and all these other factors, they put out such a small seed set, but those seeds that actually develop, those may be the ones that are pollinated with pollen from non-related individuals. Right. And I hope that that was clear. Jerry, was that clear enough? Do you think I should describe it again? That was a long way to get to that. Sure. <laughs> That's all right. So I have to talk about a study that I found that it's about witch hazel, but it's more just a cool study. Okay. This was done in the Adirondacks and at Allegheny State Park, but these researchers had the idea that beaver put branches in the water to leach out chemical compounds that they don't like. So they did all these different experiments where they left out different kinds of fresh twigs and branches 
and then they would soak some for different numbers of days and put them out to see what the beaver liked or didn't like. Okay. And they compared red maple, witch hazel, and a few other species. But they found out for some reason, beavers, if they're going to eat witch hazel, they usually only like it if it's been in the water for at least two days. Do you, do you have an idea of why they might do that? The thing they're hypothesizing is there's some chemical compound in the branches that get leached out in the water. They don't know what the chemical compound I'm, is. I'm fairly positive that in, in my research I came across that uh, witch hazel does contain a good amount of tannins. Yes, it so does. It, that, that's one way to... And tannins what, are usually pretty bitter. What would be the word for it? Is it to cure acorns or something? What would you call it? Like wash acorns? I would say you, to leach. To leach, the, yeah. You leach, leach the, the tannins, tannins by putting them in water mostly. That's right. Yeah, you boil yeah. them or, or keep them, just keep them in running or flowing water for yeah. a long time. Yeah. Well, don't forget that witch hazel is used for after shave lotion. That's right. And, uh, oh, and astringent, so that's, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So yeah. it does have those things in it. But it was funny because they, they would soak it, and then the beaver, if it was soaked for at least two days, the beaver would take it and eat it. But if they left it out fresh, the beaver would stick it in the water. They'd say, <laughs> oh, this witch hazel's not good yet, and they'd stick it in the water, and then they'd eat it. Two days, though, that seems so fast. It's though a- I did hear that the twigs of the witch hazel have low tannin contents, so that may be enough if it's low, you know? Yeah, just to leach yep. it out. Yeah. Since, Jerry, you brought up the medicinal qualities... I think we should talk about this. Cause... Let me let me talk about this video. All yeah. right, so uh, there was this lady in the woods, and she was talking about the medicinal properties of witch hazel. She was talking about the tannins and, and the astringent properties. And so she took a leaf, and she rolled it up, and she sort of crushed it a little bit in her hands. Not not to destroy the leaf, but just to sort of break it up, break the, break the skin of the leaf. Get things flowing. And then she... <laughs> And she was talking about her dry eyes and oh, that God. and that this is good for moisturizing the eyes and all this other stuff. So sort of like what you see with people, they put cucumbers over their eyes. Yeah. She stuck the leaves <laughs> to her eyes <laughs> and she just sort of like sat back and relaxed. I think that's where the video ends, but she's like a naturalist or something. I, I don't know. Or, quotes. Yeah, yeah, sure. I don't, this, this, she could be the best lady in the world. I don't know anything about her. I just watched her, her uh, witch hazel video, but it was sort of a funny video. Well, it is, it is amazing because if you go online and, and if you type in witch hazel, much more than any botanical information or uh, information about the natural history, you get tons of claims about what witch hazel can do. Uh, there's tons of websites about, oh, this is how you can make your own witch hazel and you can use it to treat this and this and this and just it's a little and... Oh, it's everything. So it is astringent. Mm-hmm. That definitely has been proven. Right. And it has a long history of use. The well, Native wh- Americans what do people use astringents for? Well, for closing up pores and... It, like wounds and whatnot. Oh, yeah. right. Wounds. Yeah. But it has so many claims of what it's used for. It's in uh, anti-hemorrhoid pads and it's used for eczema. I was looking into it. I tried to find studies that, that back this up. And there's very little out there. And I did find... Like many like many right, plants. Right. Many claims about plants. So I did find one cancer hospital, actually a couple cancer hospitals, that had a collection of pages on treatments that are out there, different home treatments or treatments that are being studied. And what they said about witch hazel, there are no meaningful studies of witch hazel. Extremely preliminary evidence hints that it may have anti-inflammatory properties and even weaker evidence suggests witch hazel may increase the contractility of veins so it might help with varicose veins but the evidence is far too weak to support witch hazel's use and most of the medical or scientific sites i looked at they basically said look a lot of the evidence out there it's very very weak but it's not harmful Right. They can't well, find much to say. If you're going to use it, it's probably not going to harm you. Be careful saying that, though. 
because... It may prevent someone from getting treatment. Right. That's where the harm comes in, right. is that they're wasting their money on something that's not going to help when they could be doing something better, right. or they just don't do the better thing at all. Right. Because, oh, I'm using witch hazel. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I did find on those cancer research hospital websites, there were a couple references to studies that looked into treatment of colon cancer, mm -hmm. and they did say that it shows promising evidence... There was one study that said it reduced colon cancer cells by 50%. Interesting. And there seems to be several studies that I found in just a quick search that mm -hmm. had promising evidence. So that is being studied right, right now. Okay, so, cool. Yeah, but it is astringent. Like, I, I have a bottle in my medicine cabinet, and if I cut myself shaving, I'll throw it on. Man, you're a pseudoscience person. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so do you have anything else? No, I think, that's, I think that's more or less it. So what do we want to tell people to wrap up? Okay, so we did want to thank a few people. Um, on our iTunes, we got another review. Yay! Yeah! Now, I'm going to try to pronounce this person's name. It's not easy. It's Sifajixiftubax. I'm not lying Whoa. to you. I think they typed in a bunch of random letters, I think. I would say Sifajixiftubax. <laughs> yeah, so thank you very much. A very, very nice review. I'm not going to go into it completely here. This, this person was very nice. They also suggest a couple things. It was specifically to do with the vegan episode, and Bill and I do plan on doing a follow-up to that, just a sort of a mini episode or something. Yeah, a mini follow-up. Yeah, a mini follow-up, because there was a new paper that came out, and, and we really want to talk about that. The paper was claiming, or the articles about the paper were claiming that this paper was saying that the vegan diet was not good for the environment. So we wanted to give our response. Yeah, we wanted to respond to that because we don't think the articles are saying exactly what the paper was saying, but yeah, it was we wanted... poorly, poorly reported on. Right, so we want to go into that and we'll talk about... This person will get a second shout-out uh, in that episode, in that follow-up. So thank you very much for the review, and if you guys want to review us, just visit us on iTunes. Um, we really appreciate reviews, and it really helps other people find out about the podcast. Helps a lot, yeah. Um, and then we also want to thank uh, two Patreon That's um, right. patrons. We, we just uh... So we want to thank Lee and Alyssa for their very generous donations to Patreon. That was where our first uh, Patreon donations, and it was, it was huge for me and Steve. We were just really moved, and we wanted to say thank you so much. It was nice to have people that we don't know yeah. supporting the podcast and saying that what we do means something to them. That was so exciting. I, I had to call Bill. I was like, <laughs> can you call? And then he didn't call me quick enough, so I called him. So that, that was incredibly exciting. It's going towards the show. When we get enough money, it goes towards Kiva. Super exciting. So, so yeah. thank you very much to Alyssa and Lee for their donations. And if you're interested in making a donation, any listeners out there, just go to Patreon. They have to go to patreon.com slash thefieldguides. So pretty simple, yeah. If you want to get in contact with us, we post every day to our Facebook. And so subscribe to those notifications so you see what we're posting every day. We're also on Instagram, uh, Field Guides Pod. You can email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com. And, uh, and we do want to, just as another follow-up, so last episode we said that Jerry, he didn't like that we were using Fahrenheit and Celsius. And not so this Jerry. Not this Jerry, but another Jerry had said that he doesn't like that we use uh, Fahrenheit and Celsius in the same episode. And I think Bill and I have decided that we're going to go with Kelvin. Am I right? <laughs> so, I, so, I mean, it's this morning, just to get things rolling, right? So yeah. it was a very chilly 285 degrees. Kelvin? Kelvin. Kelvin yeah. right. So I hope no one minds that we just use Kelvin from now on. But... <laughs> But we, uh, I, I think we should also say thank you to Jerry because he sent us another email just this morning letting us know he found a map 
of Valcor Island. That was our last episode we did when Steve and I had trouble finding the Heron Rookery. Mm -hmm. He sent us a map showing where it is, so we have reason to go back and do a part two next <laughs> spring. We'll yeah. call it the return to Valcor Island. You know, and Bill and I didn't say it in the last episode, but we did go off path a bit, yeah. and we still didn't find it. So, you know, and it's a pretty big rookery, so yeah. we should be able to find it if we give it another shot. Yeah. In the spring. Yeah. All right, part two. Oh, do we want to remind people about Jerry's book one more time? Oh, yeah, Jerry Rising, the name of the book again? Birds and Bird Watchers. All right, and they can get it. Do you recommend anywhere so they should buy it? Well, the, you could buy it on the web. You buy it, hopefully, at bookstores. Yeah, anywhere great books are sold, right? Nice. <laughs> Let me make just one comment about it. When I started collecting the columns, I just saw it as a task, but I, I became quite enamored of my own writing. <laughs> <laughs> so I recommend it to people. That's how we feel about our podcast. <laughs> yes, <laughs> good. I do, too. All that's right. a great podcast. Well, thank you. And, Jerry, wow, thanks that's... for joining us today. Yeah, and this is such a great place to end it. But I'm going to ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> when is a tree's least favorite month? I don't know. When. September. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, no. And then it's it's ruined like that. Uh, well, <laughs> Leave it bye, to everyone. Bye, everybody. <laughs>